Open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 16. John 16. We'll look this morning at verses 8 to 11. John 16, 8 to 11. Back in John chapter 7, Jesus promised that uh, those who believe in him would know streams of living water flowing from within them. That we'd have that kind of wonderful refreshment to share with the world around us. We'd be like a big, cool drinking fountain, streams of water coming all the time. I don't know what your assessment is as I look at the church, those that bear Jesus' names, Jesus' name, it looks to me sometimes as though rather than a cool, fresh drinking fountain, we are more like a stagnant pool filled with muddy water, distinguished from one another by the color of the mud, perhaps. Maybe that's pessimistic. But if that's true, I think in our text this morning, we see something of... uh, what we need to know to change that, maybe where we went wrong if we got the waters muddied. Let me read these verses. I'm going to actually begin a little bit back um, with verse 5 so that we understand the whole context, although we're just talking about uh, verses 8 to 11. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asked me where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Two truths that I want us to hear from this text this morning, and I'm ask, I'll ask you to think hard with me for a while, because... I think that these are not the two truths that will just would jump out off the page at you. And yet I really think that this is the weight of this text as it comes to us and how it should be applied to us. The first is this. Testify boldly, for God changes hearts. Testify boldly, for God changes hearts. We're talking about muddied water a minute. Well, this text, I think, explains how our boldness and our confidence get muddied. Let me explain a little bit. We're in the story. If you remember where we are in the story here, uh, in John 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, for his death, which is going to take place the very next day, and then for his ascension into heaven, which he knows will come a bit after his resurrection. All of this is taking place only, very, only hours before his arrest and his uh, uh, trial and his crucifixion uh, the next day. 
During this evening, Jesus has told his disciples some mind-boggling things. The instruction of the evening began back with chapter 13. So all of 13 and 14 and 15 and now into 16 is all instruction taking place the same evening before Jesus is, uh, is arrested and crucified. <clears throat> He's told them a lot of things. He said, I'm going away and you can't come with me. That didn't uh, make them feel that great. And, and, and he said, but when I go, I want you to keep doing the things that I've been doing. And then he gave them great promises. Uh, uh, ask of me and, uh, and I'll give you what you need. And, but then he went on and he said, but don't uh, be surprised if people hate you when you do this because they hated me, they're going to hate you too. In fact, it's going to get so bad that they're going to kick you out of the synagogues. And uh, they may even kill some of you. But I want you to testify of me. And I kind of pick up on that because that's kind of the key thought here, I think, right at the end of the chapter 15. You, also, you must testify. The Spirit will testify of me and you must testify for you've been with me from the beginning. So here he's calling them to, to be testimonies of, uh, concerning him. Though he's leaving and, and uh, people are going to treat him bad and... Uh, and maybe kick him out and try to kill him. Boy, I'd, I'd be really ready to get out and go testify, wouldn't you? Like, boy, I can't wait to get at this task. Let's go and take on the jeering, uh, hateful crowds. I'm sure that they were confused and timid and afraid. But Jesus knows all of that, and so that's why he is telling them about his promised Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit he now has sent the Spirit. This is present reality for us. And he says, when the Spirit comes, He will change hearts. Now, he doesn't actually use that word. He uses the word convict. Or hear what it is say. Uh, yeah, convict the world of guilt. Convict, that's a little word that can have a lot of nuances of meaning. It can mean to reprove or to expose or to convince or to show to be guilty but Jesus isn't saying that the Spirit will do these things in regard to the disciples, that he will show you when you're wrong. And he's not saying that. He's saying that the Spirit will do these things in regard to the world, that hostile, evil system that's going to hate you. Now, if the Holy Spirit's going to do those things in the face of stubborn unbelief and rebellion and even hatred strong enough to kick out and expel and kill then it becomes clear that Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to do the supernatural work of changing people. George Whitfield, the most prominent evangelist of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, explained the Spirit's work this way. He talked about this, for, this word. He said, the word which we translate reprove ought to be rendered convince. And in the original, it implies a conviction by way of argumentation and a coming with a power upon the mind equal to a visible, tangible demonstration. The Holy Spirit will convict. He will grab a hold of your mind and change hearts, Jesus said. I think we can see the impact of this promise of Jesus if we compare the word that he uses concerning the Spirit with some of the commands that he gave to the disciples. Looking over this previous chapter, I just went through and noted this, some of the commands that Jesus gave to his disciples. He said, you abide in me or remain in me. And he says, you, you ask whatever you need. And he says, you remain in my love. 
Love another, he says. Remember my words, he says. You must testify of me and don't fall away when they persecute you. That's kind of a list of some commands for his disciples. And all of those commands have to do with maintaining relationships. Maintain your relationship with me. Abide in me, he says. Don't draw drawn away from me. Maintain your relationship to one another. Love one another. Don't forget your ho the hostile relationship of the world around you. Uh, don't fall away when they persecute you. You need to understand. You don't belong to them. That's why they're going to hate you. Maintain these relationships. Walk in relationship with me and with one another. But then in verse 8 he says, But when the Spirit comes, He will convict or convince, or as we said, change hearts. Now later in the New Testament, Christ's disciples are told to do the same kind of thing, to reprove and correct and persuade. But in this context, there seems to be a contrast here. You maintain relationship to me. You worry about staying with me. You worry about loving one another. You worry about keeping your head straight about the world and whether you belong to the world or to me. You worry about that. But when the Spirit comes, he will change the hearts of those people out there. He will be working in the hearts of the deepest level of the world out there. That's what the Spirit will do. You do what I've given you to do. The Spirit changes hearts. Testify of me boldly, you see. Because you know what the Spirit's doing. Now this ought to be a great encouragement to us. It's a great encouragement, I think, in two different ways. One, first of all, because it helps us understand what's happening. If we're just the nicest people on earth and we never cause any trouble and we mind our own business and we have lives of integrity and right relationship to God and loving one another, and then all of a sudden people hate us and want to kick us out or kill us or, or oppose us in some way, and we say, what's going on? Well, we might not know what to make of it except that God has told us that when the Holy Spirit comes and when we and the Holy Spirit go out testifying of Jesus, that our task is to maintain relationship with him and love one another and speak of him. And the Spirit's job is to be convicting, convincing, reproving, exposing. And our very presence there is like light shining in the darkness, and that's going to make people uncomfortable. You remember Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul? He's, he's hating Christians. These people that didn't even know him didn't ever do a thing to him. He hates them. He pursues them like a, like a dog after its prey. He, 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 he gets orders to throw them in jail. He, he approves of their, of their murder, their execution. What is going on with this guy? What is driving this man? <clears throat> well, when Jesus convicts him, when Jesus uh, confronts him, he says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? Well, that tells us a world of information about what's going on. These Christians just living as Christians, bearing testimony of Jesus, was used by the Holy Spirit like a sharp stick poking at Saul all the time, poking at him, poking at him, poking at him, pushing him, pushing him. He didn't like that. So who do you attack? You attack the Christians. It's their presence there that is the occasion of this. So when Jesus says, testify boldly, 
Because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to use your testimony to goad people and push them toward myself. Well, then when they hate us, it helps us at least understand what's going on. We know that the Spirit is working, sure enough. He's exposing guilt and he's causing people to feel uncomfortable because they don't believe in Jesus. And that's an encouragement. We say, something had gone wrong. This is how it works. You live as a Christian, God's going to use it like a sharp stick and somebody's poking at somebody. It's also a great encouragement because it causes us to know that God promised to do what we cannot possibly do. Imagine if someone offered you a job and said, I have a product and I know it's not very popular. 94% of the people polled say they don't want this product, but I'm going to sell you, send you out to sell it anyway. And uh, by the way, you have a little special challenge because I'm sending you out to sell this to people who are blind and uh, deaf. So it's going to be a little harder. And your first item is I want you to go down to the morgue and I want you to sell it down at the morgue here to these people laying on the slab down there. You'd probably say, I don't think that's a job I want. I can't do that. There's a sense in which that's what God has called us to do. He said, you, here's, you have this message of life in Christ. The only problem is the world has already shown they don't want it. They hung him on a cross when he came. They didn't want it when he was presenting himself, let alone when you're pitifully trying to tell people. And, and by the way, these people are spiritually blind. They can't understand, and they're deaf, and they can't hear what you're really saying. They hear the words, but it doesn't register. In fact, the situation is so bad that God says people are dead in their trespasses and sins. So I want you to go out there and call people to get up and come follow Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a good deal to me. What? I can't do that. I can't do that. No, I can't. But see, I can, and I dare to, because the Lord tells me here, you just testify boldly. You just be a testimony of me. The Spirit changes hearts. I don't have to change hearts. I can't change hearts. But you see, the Spirit does change hearts. He can make the blind to see. He can make the deaf to hear. He can make even the dead to rise again because he is the spirit of Jesus. And Jesus did all those things. That's what I meant when I talked about things being muddy. Our muddied thinking be about who does what our confusion about what God has called us to do versus what God has promised to do, that confusion has stolen away our confidence as Christ's witnesses. But if we can ever get it straight that though God has sent us to do this impossible thing, it's not something he's looking to us to do. We are just witnesses. We just testify boldly. We just stand there and say to the people dead in their sins, come alive and follow Christ. We feel like a fool. And yet the Spirit gives life and people come alive and follow Christ. Testify boldly. Jesus said, I'm sending my Spirit and He will change hearts. That's the first thing we need to learn from this passage. Second's a little different, but similar. 
Testify not just boldly. Testify clearly. Clearly. People need Jesus. Testify clearly because people need Jesus. You see, it's one thing to get confused about who does what and to think that I'm going to go out there and do the impossible or to think that it is impossible, therefore I can't do anything. And it does steal away our boldness and it leaves us frustrated and discouraged and timid. That's one thing. But, oh, if we ever get confused about the testimony itself, if we ever get confused about the content of our witness for Christ, that confusion is deadly. When I think about these verses, I think we'll have to realize, if we really think deeply about them as we go through them here, I think we'll have to admit that very often the church has even muddied the message itself. Not just who does what, but the message itself. We need to be called to testify clearly. Let me tell you what I mean. How does this sound to you? What does the church have to say to the world? What is the church's message? What is it that we need to preach to the world around us? How does this sound? Stop your sinning. You need to change and do what's right and live in righteousness because judgment's coming. Sound pretty good? Stop your sinning. Live in righteousness because judgment's coming. I think that would summarize what a lot of messages, a lot of churches preach. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If that's what you're going to go out and proclaim, though, you need to understand you're on your own. Good luck. A lot of other people better than you and me have tried to get people to stop sinning and live in righteousness, live in light of the fact that judgment's coming in. People still don't do it. That's not what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's not what the Holy Spirit's doing. It sounds real similar, but it's not what the Holy Spirit is doing. Look at these verses again. Verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and to righteousness and judgment. You say, yeah, there it is. That's just what you said. That's right. That's what he said. But listen to what he said. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no more. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What I want you to see is that in every case, in regard to all three of these things, the issue is Jesus. The issue is Jesus. Testify clearly, my brothers and sisters. People need Jesus. That's what the Spirit is doing. To say anything less is to reduce the supernatural gospel of God down to a humanist kind of moralizing. Be a good person. Try harder. You see, sin and righteousness and judgment are not new themes in the world. 
fact, throughout the history of the world, people have not needed the Holy Spirit in order to be convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. In fact, I would argue that there is not a culture, there is not a human society, there is not a people on the face of the earth where there is not embedded deep in that culture a, a sense of right and wrong, of what is sin and what's not sin, of what is righteous and what is not righteous, and some corresponding sense of responsibility to give an account for your actions. Something similar to God's law is etched on the conscience of human beings everywhere because we're humans. We're made in God's image. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect. There are cultures that, that glorify lying or glorify murder, and so it's all distorted. But human beings always know better than they do. Sin and righteousness and responsibility, accountability, it's part of human cultures everywhere. You don't need the Holy Spirit to learn that. And even if that were not the case, even if the world were totally in the dark in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, think of how God has gone to great lengths to give us and preserve for us his law. You uncertain about whether or not you're sinful? Pick up the Ten Commandments and read them. It only takes a minute to resolve that question. You don't know what righteousness is? Look briefly at God's law and you see it described. And judgment, is there any question about judgment, whether there's a, a, accountability or not? God's law says the soul that sins will die. That's pretty clear. All have sinned. If you sin, you're guilty. Righteousness is the opposite of sinning. You don't need the Holy Spirit to teach you about sin and righteousness and judgment. You got the law. Let the Spirit stay with the Father in heaven. In fact, to be specific, the people who crucified Jesus, every one of them believed in sin and righteousness and judgment, didn't they? No one was more concerned about sin and righteousness than the Pharisees. Well, they weren't just concerned to tithe, they were concerned to tithe even the spices they put in their food. Perfect righteousness. We want to do every single thing that God's law says. The Sadducees may not have believed in judgment to come, but the Pharisees did. They believed in sin and righteousness and judgment. They believed it with all their heart. Why do they need the Spirit to come? Because they didn't have Jesus. They rejected Jesus. That's the issue. You see, our, in our day, it's not much different either. People in our culture believe in sin. You know, even your worst political opponents still want to reduce crime and corruption. Nobody, no, very few people are saying, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe there's such a thing as sin. I don't think sin's a problem. Well, people believe in sin. 
People are concerned about sin. It's just that not believing in Jesus is not considered a sin. Not believing in Jesus, well, that's my right. I mean, it's not a sin what I believe or don't believe about religion, right? That's my right. My God-given right to choose for myself. Mm. And along comes the Christian saying, if you reject Jesus, it's sinful. God will judge you for that. Anything that rejects Jesus is wrong. Oh, now we got trouble. <laughs> but you see, that's exactly what the Spirit is doing. He, when he comes, Jesus says he will convict of sin. Not so people will know they're sinners. People know they're sinners. He will convict of sin because people don't believe in me. And that's the crucial dividing issue. Do you believe in Jesus? You see, we're called to testify clearly. People need Jesus. To reject him is sin. Well, the same is true about righteousness. Our society believes in righteousness. We're distressed when we see unrighteousness in our society, especially in our leaders. Then someone argues, well, their unrighteousness is no worse than these people's unrighteousness. That we're, they're the last uh, group of leaders, and that's probably true. But that's, a, that's the problem with our whole sense of righteousness, is that it's, it's, it's poorly defined. Righteousness uh, is a matter of some technicalities of laws that we can think, well, we kept these technical things, and therefore we're okay. Or we're better than so-and-so, therefore we're okay. And so we have kind of a, a, a comparative sense of righteousness. But even the Old Testament prophets warn us that that's not good enough. That all of the righteousness we might accumulate by all the law keeping we might do and all the most selfless acts and all the giving to the poor and all the spending of time and money to do wonderful things all of that all the prayers and all the bible reading and all the attendance at church and worship and all of that that we might ever amass and god looks at all and he says filthy rags filthy rags not enough Oh, but you see, the Spirit holds before us a different kind of righteousness, a whole different category of righteousness, nothing less than the righteous character of Jesus himself. Today, Jesus dwells in joy and harmony with his Father. Now, you see, that requires a different kind of righteousness than just being a little better than everybody else. That, that, that requires a different kind of righteousness than being freed on a technicality. Or even found not guilty even though you're not a perfect person. No, there's a whole different kind of righteousness though. Kind of righteousness that can stand in perfect harmony before God who is a consuming, purifying fire and enjoy perfect fellowship. That is a different kind of righteousness. But that's the righteousness that the world has, has to have. Oh, we will never see God. You see, this matter of righteousness is not a question of getting people to clean up their act and live better lives. 
to try to, harder to keep the law and to treat their neighbors better. No, it's more than that. We need to testify clearly that what matters is that you must have the righteousness of Jesus. In order to stand before God, you must have your filthy righteousness, let alone your sins, washed away, which only the blood of Christ can do. And you must be clothed by the perfection of Jesus. That's all that's acceptable. Everything less is to be disapproved. The issue is Jesus. And what was true of sin and righteousness is also true about judgment. Our society believes in judgment. Lock them up, throw away the key, we say. That's judgment, folks. Three strikes and you're out. That's judgment. We believe in judgment. Even when we're not talking about criminals. Most people still believe that there's some reward and punishment for good or evil in this life or in another life or something. We don't need the Holy Spirit to understand the notion of judgment. So why did Jesus send his Spirit? If we already know it anyway. Why did he send his Spirit? Look at verse 11. And in regard to judgment, to convict the world of judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Here the world sits, the people doing their best, living within the system, trying to be good people, hoping that someday it's going to be good enough to stand in the face of whatever kind of accounting there is, however you may see that. And Jesus says, no, the whole world has missed the point. Mankind is on the wrong side of history. We're pursuing a defeated cause, following a loser, submitting to the prince of this world. But on the cross, the prince of this world was defeated already. That controlling supernatural spirit person who's behind all of the philosophy of the day and the fashion of the day and the power that seems to be something in this world, that prince was defeated. He went down in flames on the cross, at the cross. He was condemned. He was stripped of his power and stripped of his dominion by the one act of obedience of Jesus who gave his life an atonement for sinners. So now, it may seem like the world goes on, and it may seem like that it's important to be in step with the philosophy of the day and the fashion of the day and the thinking of the day, but it's a hopeless cause. It's a misguided venture. It's already doomed. Instead, God has quietly, without a lot of fanfare, enthroned his son, the lamb who was slain. He's the king. He doesn't look like much. Easy to ignore. The world has lots of fanfare and is cranking up the band to get everyone to follow. And Jesus, kind of quiet, he sits in the heavens. But God says, he's the king of kings. And God says in Psalm 2, I've exalted my son, I've enthroned my son 
All that matters is you better kiss the son. Honor my son. Honor my son. You see, when judgment day comes, the issue will have already been settled. In another place, Jesus talks about judgment day, and he said they were gathered before him. All the people and the sheep were on one side and the goats were on the other side and they began to have an accounting. You notice what happened there? The division takes, is already established before the accounting ever starts. People may think that God is going to get there and kind of weigh everything. Okay, well, this guy, uh, yep, he barely made it. No. The division is already now. Division was determined at the cross. One is either a follower of the prince of this world or one is a follower of the crucified lamb. The prince of this world seems to be in control and seems to be victorious and it seems like the crucified lamb is nothing but in God's kingdom there's a great reversal and he's proven it because he's raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand in heaven. The, the crucified lamb is the king. The prince of the world is doomed. And so the God gives his Holy Spirit to testify as we go and proclaim Jesus that this is the crisis issue. This is it. Which side are you on? Now we can see how that work of the Spirit <coughs> works. If we look forward just about 50 days from where our text is to the day of Pentecost. So just for an example, let me just show you what it, how it works. And the day of Pentecost is when Jesus fulfilled his promise to send his spirit. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Suddenly these disciples who a few hours after Jesus spoke these words ran for their lives when they arrested Jesus. One of them ran so fast that he, they grabbed his clothes and he ran off naked, left his clothes behind him. He was so scared. Peter, of course, stood in the courtyard and swore with a curse that he didn't know Jesus. Now, 50 days later, we find them out in the public square with the whole crowd of this crowded city of Jerusalem in the midst of an unbelieving, sneering, cynical crowd boldly testifying of Jesus. Listen to Peter. Here's what he says. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. You hear Peter preaching sin here? He's not saying, you guys need to turn over a new leaf. You're not as good as me. Oh, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you rejected the one God approved. That's sin. He goes on. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised 
Holy Spirit. Do you hear him preaching the righteousness of Jesus here? You may have thought he was a blasphemer, but God approved. God raised him from the dead and he exalted him to the place of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings at his very right hand. Peter goes on, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucify, both Lord and Messiah. Well, you see, it's not wait and see what, if what you believed is good enough and if what you did proves to be enough. No, Peter says, you guys are on the wrong side of history. God made himself known in Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him anyway. He's now the Lord, the Messiah, and you guys are on the wrong side. You see, Peter wasn't calling people to be better people. They were wonderful people. They were godly Jews gathered there to worship. But they were on the wrong side of Jesus. Therefore, they're hopelessly sinful. Therefore, they're hopelessly unrighteous. Therefore, they're doomed to judgment because they still are walking after the prince of this world. And he's finished. Peter only bears testimony of Jesus. Well, now you can see how the Holy Spirit works. See the Holy Spirit in action. Here's pitiful little Peter. Peter's not a preacher. You know, he never went to seminary. He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. Do you know any fishermen? Think of the fishermen you know, standing up in front of a big crowd of probably several thousand people preaching. It's a funny sight. Here is Peter, who was, who was cowering in fear and wanting to hide in the cracks, now standing here publicly, boldly testifying. And what does the Spirit do? Remember what Jesus said, when the counselor comes, he will convict. God will change hearts. Listen to what happens, Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. How does Peter cut people to the heart? He doesn't. You don't. I don't. The Spirit cut them to the heart. And they said to Peter and the others, what are we going to do? Testify boldly. God changes hearts. How did Peter respond? Did Peter say, well, you need to go home and memorize the commandments and try harder? Oh, no, he didn't say that. The commandments are good and he believed them. He said, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter understood clearly that people needed Jesus. They didn't just need to try harder. They didn't just need to be better people. They didn't just need to go to church more. They needed Jesus. And he testified clearly to that fact. You see what I mean about muddying the waters? Every sin in the world can be forgiven by Christ. Every sin in the world. But unbelief will send you to hell. And in regard to righteousness, you may be the most wonderful, righteous person in the world, but it's nothing 
All that matters is the righteousness of Jesus, either clothed with that or you're naked. In regard to judgment, which side of history are you on? The hopeless side that looks so successful? Or the victorious side, which looks persecuted and is nothing right now? The division is already being made. Testify clearly, my brothers and sisters. People need Jesus. So Jesus says, when the counselor, the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What an encouragement. God himself will change hearts as we proclaim the testimony of Jesus. Doesn't that give you boldness? I don't have to be able to change anybody's heart. I just Tell them about the Savior. I just love the Savior and love His people and keep myself uh, 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 in right relationship to the hostility of the world. Remember who's where and what I belong to. I just walk with the Savior. I don't have to change anybody's hearts. I can't change any hearts. I can't make blind people see. I can't make dead people come alive. But God changes hearts. Oh, but what a crucial distinction Jesus makes when he tells of the Spirit's work. They don't just need to hear about sin and righteousness and judgment. People need Jesus. They need to know that their sin is that they don't believe in him. That the righteousness that matters is being clothed with his righteousness. That the judgment that matters has already taken place on the cross. We must testify clearly. People need Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and for the opportunity to think about it and meditate on it and chew it over in our minds. I pray that as we do that, that you cause us to see the full impact of it until we, Lord, have a holy boldness that's like that of the apostles. And until we have a discernment that can cut through all of the little moralism that surrounds the church and hold forth the Savior clearly, which is the work you tell us you're doing, Lord. Grow the seed of this truth in us. Produce the fruit that you would like to produce in us. In Jesus' name we pray.